Chapter Twelve of East by West by Henry W. Lucy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. Chapter Twelve: The Heathen Chinese. It is a far cry from San Francisco to Yokohama, the distance seeming the greater by reason of the loneliness of the way. Nineteen days are occupied in crossing four thousand seven hundred miles of water, and during all that time, till within a hundred miles of Yokohama, we do not see a sail or other sign of human life. Life of any kind except that borne along by the ship herself has been curiously absent. One day, a missionary from Illinois created some excitement by discovering a whale. But it turned out to be only a porpoise. Opportunities for observing the common objects of the sea are limited in Illinois. Save for the albatross, the great waste of water bounded by the horizon would be absolutely lifeless. But the albatross we have always with us. Shortly after land had faded from sight, three attached themselves to the ship. And through a wild wet day, followed it, sometimes swooping far ahead as if impatient of its slow progress, and then returning quietly to talk the matter over in our wake. On the fourth day, the number was increased to nine at which it steadily stood. It is hard to say whether they are always the same birds, and much kindly thought is bestowed upon their sleeping arrangements. Wherever they sleep or howsoever they rest, they are always full of life and strength and grace, careering round the ship, and never tired of their one game, which consists of getting a clear run with one or two flaps of their wings, then with graceful swoop coming down to the water's edge, and seeing which can go nearest to the waves without wetting the tip of one wing. One Sunday afternoon, to the scandal of the missionaries, of whom we have six on board, they began playing cartwheels, in close imitation of the London street boy, but they soon tired of this and went back to the prize skimming game, which they have played incessantly ever since. One day a ship in full sail bound east past us. The day after, when within a hundred miles of port, we had a visitor in the shape of a dove. Like the one dispatched by Noah, it had been out over the waste of waters in search of land, and finding none, gladly took refuge on our ark. It sat for hours on one of the yard-arms, and regarded with profound interest the crowd of Chinese playing dominoes on the lower deck. In the afternoon came also a couple of white albatross, which gaily escorted us till night fell upon the ship, almost under the shadow of land. A wreck on the Atlantic is bad enough, but a wreck on the Pacific is almost hopeless. On a recent passage of one of these steamers, the lookout discovered far on the lee what looked like an abandoned junk. Bearing down upon it, signs of life were noted, and a boat was prepared for the rescue. 
the steamer bearing close down upon the junk and having too much way on her passed it whereupon seven half-starved japanese who had been eagerly watching her approach believing the steamer was after all abandoning them flung themselves upon the deck with a despairing shriek and all that could be seen was half a dozen skeleton hands waving over the bulwarks of the junk a mute appeal to relent and rescue them when the japanese were taken off they could scarcely crawl across the deck of the steamer and one died the same night delirious with his first meal it was a junk rice-laden and had been driven out to sea by a typhoon three long months they had been tossing about on the lonely pacific hungrily scanning the horizon and never a sail had they seen till the steamer hove in sight they had subsisted wholly on raw rice and it fortunately being the rainy season had found a bare but sufficient supply of water under the unremitting care of their rescuers the six japanese recovered health and strength indeed before being landed at yokohama they were well enough to roundly abuse the captain for having burned their waterlogged junk after saving them and to threaten an action for damages an ordinary atlantic steamer would make this voyage in fourteen days the coptic though small as compared with the atlantic liners could easily do it in sixteen but the managers at san francisco have reached the conclusion that more money is to be made by extending the natural limits of the voyage which not infrequently runs to twenty-six days the occidental and oriental line is registered as a liverpool company and the ships at the time of my visit actually belonged to the white star line practically the little knot of men already alluded to as controlling all public works in connection with san francisco have closed their rapacious hand over this line of steamers which they charter there is another line the pacific mail to which an innocent public might look to deliver them from a tyranny of monopoly but san francisco operators are not likely to leave a weapon of the kind hanging loose the two companies pool their earnings and of course settle their freight charges on a common basis limited by the endurance of the public i do not know anything of the freight charges but can bear testimony that the passage money as compared with the mileage of the atlantic is nearly fifty per cent higher that might be borne especially as there is no redress but the hapless passengers have some cause for complaint that their time should be ruthlessly wasted offered up as sacrifice to the moloch of the niggardly economy of the san francisco clique things have grown worse since the company became possessed of a so-called coal mine this is known as the carbon hill mine and according to the san francisco joke the managers of the occidental line debated for some time whether they should work it for slate or for coal it was decided by a toss-up to call it a coal mine and the proceeds are sent out to be burned in this line of mail steamers 
burning it liberally and with a fair wind, we gaily bowl along at ten knots an hour. With a head wind and a rough sea, if we make four knots, we are grateful. With fair treatment, the Coptic could do an average of fourteen knots. Experiments are now being made with the view of using this coal in driving the cable street trams in San Francisco. A still more ambitious project entertained by the ruthless proprietors is to burn it on the Union Pacific line. The only hope for hapless San Francisco and for the public using this great highway to the west rests in the fact that the Carbon Hill mine is the private property of a few members of the clique, and they will have to settle with their colleagues in the proprietorship. If it can be made worth their while, these gentlemen will, in accordance with their custom, accept the stuff for coal. But the terms must be high, and San Francisco, helplessly looking on, hopes for the best. As for the mail steamers, things are likely to grow worse rather than better, since there is some talk of abandoning the charter with the White Star Line for a cheaper class of vessel. In the meantime, we have a White Star ship with all its comforts and admirable management, as far as it can be controlled from Liverpool. We have in Captain Kidley one of the cheeriest, kindliest commanders afloat, and, with occasional growls at the coal, get along very comfortably. Our captain has a fine baritone voice, and comes out with great effect in the choir on Sundays. The difficulty here, and with kindred entertainments, is that the piano has been tuned at least two notes low, a fresh evidence, it is agreed, of the economical policy of the management. Last Sunday it had been arranged to include in the hymns the one commencing Eternal Father, Strong to Save, a hymn which, sung in thousands of English churches on quiet Sundays, finds an echo in many a lonely ship making its way across the pathless ocean. Just before the service I came upon the captain, evidently in a mood of deep dejection, despairingly wrestling with a difficult problem. "'What's the matter, Captain?' I asked. "'Have the engineers come upon another layer of slate?' "'No,' said he, loyally resenting reference to the sore subject of the coal. "'I'm thinking of the piano. We must pitch Eternal Father two bars higher.' We have on board, living and dead, some twelve hundred Chinamen. The living ones are going home to spend in China the modest fortune they have made in California. The dead are going home to be buried in the company of their ancestors. No one can say how many dead we have on board, though the original number is being added to from day to day. Even the purser does not know though he might, if he liked, tell how many coffins have been regularly entered as freight by the six companies of San Francisco. These corporations were instituted with the object of directing and profiting by the immigration of the Chinese to California. Apart from other payments, a Chinaman subscribes two dollars to the six companies on arriving at San Francisco, and from two to six on returning. 
in consideration of these payments the companies undertake in the event of sickness to provide medical aid and in case of death to embalm the body and ship it to hong kong the companies are in fact a kind of sick and burial society on a hill at san francisco overlooking the bay and the golden gate is a small unkempt enclosure known as the chinese cemetery but it is merely a temporary resting place for the bones of the tired dead man it is in his bond that sooner or later he shall be laid at rest in his native village in convenient contiguity to his ancestors and the six companies dare no more in the least considerable case refuse to meet this engagement than the bank of england dare refuse to cash one of its five-pound notes it is whispered among the outer barbarians that the six companies are not asleep to opportunities of reducing their liabilities if they have on their books a man sinking from consumption a dire disease among the chinese immigrants they make haste to ship him off if he dies in san francisco it will cost the companies from first to last twenty pounds if he is once got on board and passes out through the golden gate into another world the cost of embalming the body falls on other shoulders if the man has money the amount is deducted from his possessions if he has not the poorest chinaman on board will subscribe to the fund necessary to secure his embalmment in either case the cost of embalming is only thirty dollars of which the purser takes twelve and a half the doctor who does the work receives an equal sum and the odd five dollars are distributed among the members of the crew who handle the coffin a dead chinaman is with grotesque realism called a stiff and the number of stiffs on a voyage is the measure of the financial prosperity of purser doctor and petty officers on a good voyage i have been told there have been as many as sixteen stiffs representing four hundred and eighty dollars these steamers always take out a stock of coffins they are stored in the boats on deck and should anything happen to the vessel and we had to take to the boats we must first hand out the coffins some full others empty a chinese coffin has an unaccustomed look which relieves the boatloads from much of their ghastliness they look like trunks of trees hollowed squared and with the ends stopped up they are not shaped with the stiff formality of the western coffin and are to my mind infinitely preferable generally the deaths are viewed with stolid indifference by the chinese there is one more bunk empty one mouth less to feed and the purser and doctor have another handful of dollars but when there is a family and one is taken the commotion is considerable there was on board our ship an old dried-up chinese lady from demerara said to be eighty years of age she was hastening home to dwell for ever with kith and kin but could not hold out and died on the tenth day one night she predicted her death on the following day had herself dressed in grave clothes and lay quietly awaiting the tryst she had made 
and which death for his part faithfully kept. When the coffin was carried out to be placed with the rest in the boat, her sons and daughters and grandchildren followed it with great weeping and wailing, in which their sympathetic countrymen playing dominoes on the deck heartily joined. When the sailcloth was drawn over the newest coffin, stowed away in the boat hanging by the davits, sons, daughters, and grandchildren went back to pipes and tea. The players returned to their dominoes, and the yellow wrinkled old lady in the white grave clothes seemed to pass from memory. The reason why uncertainty exists as to the precise number of dead bodies on board arises from the friendly habits of the Chinese. They will, to oblige a neighbour, cheerfully pack up the bones of a compatriot in a red pocket handkerchief, or place them as the last layer in a trunk containing their best clothes, and so give them free passage home. The live Chinaman is the most inveterate gambler of the human race. He begins shortly after sunrise, and the dominoes and dice are put away only when it grows too dark to recognise the numbers. I got up early one morning to see the sunrise, and was rewarded by coming upon even a more remarkable sight. It was a Chinaman cleaning his teeth. He had on a pair of blue cotton trousers, made for a man with much longer body, the seat flapping idly about his knees. Above this he wore a sailor's cloth pea-jacket, green with age. The front part of his head, shaved shortly before leaving San Francisco, was now covered with short hair, his pigtail being wound several times round the crown of his head. There, in the early morning, with the east beginning to glow in the light of the rising sun, the Chinaman stood and sedulously sawed away at his teeth, with a brush he had probably borrowed from his last place. Near him, even at this hour, were five groups sitting on their haunches around pieces of matting, playing dominoes and chattering like so many magpies. They seem a very light-hearted race, with unlimited conversational powers, and a keen perception of what passes in Chinese for a joke. Their capacity for the conditions of sedentary life is astonishing. Some of them do not leave their bunk from one week's end to the other. Those who go on deck either sit on their haunches all day gambling, or stand vacantly staring at the quarter-deck, as if they momentarily expected something to happen upon it. Nothing surprises them so much as to see the saloon passengers walking up and down as if for a wager. On fine days some of them dine on deck, and display remarkable dexterity with their chopsticks. They eat in parties of fourteen. Each mess has its self-elected steward who brings the allowance, around which the fourteen sit gabbling and gobbling, putting their chopsticks in the common dish, and stoking themselves with rice with marvellous skill. An able-bodied Chinaman dexterously poises his bowl over his under-lip, holding it with his left hand. In his right twinkle the chopsticks, and before you could count a score, the bowl is empty, and the reinvigorated diner out is fishing round with his chopsticks in the common bowl for a toothsome bit of fat pork. 
upwards of half a ton of rice is consumed every day by the steerage passengers this is their staple food but they have delicacies and luxuries which vary its monotony dried fish is much appreciated and so are eggs if of proper age it is of course only the rich who can afford the luxury of an egg laid five or six years ago on board the ship the steerage passengers must be content to have them as many months old they are shipped in barrels each egg being carefully covered with a preparation of mud and charcoal this is peeled off and the delicacy is ready for the table it is interesting to watch the glistening eyes and watering lips of the group standing around the barrel in which the eggs are being peeled who knows but that peradventure a real full-flavoured five-year-old may not by accident have got in with the rest another delicacy of even higher rank is shrimps not your fresh shrimps redolent of the sea such as are served with bread and butter and watercress at margate the inborn conservatism of the chinese extends to his dish of shrimps they must be old or he will have none of them they are shelled and dried and after many days made into soup in conjunction with vermicelli it is a great day in the steerage when shrimp soup is on the bill of fare the shells are exported to china where they bring a large price being regarded as the finest manure for the tea plant in san francisco a large and important trade is carried on in shrimp shells of which we have many bales among our cargo another favourite chinese soup is made of a coarse sugar first cousin to molasses known as panochi a proportion of ship's biscuits is added and the soup served out twice a week to the exceeding joy of the chinese yet another prime delicacy is a vegetable known as bean-stick this is the bean-stalk dried and submitted to some more mysterious process after which it is chopped up and boiled to make soup tea is served at every meal and is of course taken without milk or sugar this list comprises the principal articles of food provided on the ship in addition some of the more thoughtful furnish themselves with a supply of pork sausages supernaturally fat these they hang up at the head of their bunks it must be rather hard for the poor fellows on either side or in the rear bunks to have these tempting delicacies hanging almost literally over their noses and to feel that they are another's i had the opportunity of visiting the chinese quarters in the ship and was astonished to find it densely populated at eleven o'clock in the morning it was a fine morning and the decks fore and aft were crowded with domino players chattering at the top of their voice as fortune varied and there were exchanged driblets of cash of which at present currency eleven hundred go to make three and ninepence yet the berths below deck were as populous as a rabbit warren as we walked through dodging the strings of sausages that hung out from many bunks yellow faces bobbed up from all quarters 
and great brown almond-shaped eyes fixed us with uncompromising stare. Unlike the Japanese, who, whenever they can, dress in European garments, which even upon the well-to-do classes look as if they were misfits bought in Petticoat Lane, the Chinese, even at sea, preserve their national garb. They are not exclusive in respect of trousers, which may be of any cloth or cut, though blue cotton is preferred. Nor are they particular in the matter of headgear. The proper Chinese cap is made of black silk, close-fitting and surmounted by a little red button. These are largely worn on the ship, but in number they are run very close by a soft, flat-crowned billycock in various stages of dilapidation and having more or less reference to the size of the head. This disreputable headgear, clapped over the pigtail and surmounting the Chinese tunic, sometimes has an irresistibly comic effect. Amongst the throng of coolies are some half-dozen men of strikingly different appearance. These are decently dressed in blue-cloth tunics with trousers to match, and with stockings on their feet. They wear their pigtails down their back, where in course of time it makes a smooth, greasy mark between the shoulders. They are merchants returning home on business, and could well afford to take a saloon passage. But, like the Shunamite woman, they prefer to dwell among their own people. One family, consisting of father, mother, and three pretty moon-faced children, travelled from Los Angeles to San Francisco in a drawing-room car. On board the Coptic, they pig in with their own race, eat their own food, and breathe their somewhat overladen air. Neither wife nor children have, as far as I have seen, once appeared on deck since the ship left San Francisco. That is by no means an uncommon case, yet they appear healthy and happy enough. Infinite care is taken to find the best possible ventilation for the crowded hold, and with surprising success. On the morning I visited the steerage, it had been battened down on account of rough weather, yet no one could have told that a thousand people closely packed had passed the night there. There is food for pensive thought in the fact that there are over eleven hundred Chinamen on board the ship, and less than fifty of western race. Contingencies have been cared for in a peculiar but effective manner. Hoses and steam-pipes are strategically placed so as to command the decks and holds. If the Chinese were to prove obstreperous, they might be either steamed or drenched. Cases are not infrequent where the hose is brought into requisition. Not very long ago, on a voyage of thirty days, the supply of rice gave out, and the Chinese began to murmur. The murmur rising to clamour, the hose was got ready for action. When the Chinese rushed aft asking for rice, the boatswain gave them water, and what might have been a murderous outbreak was instantly quelled. Four days before we arrived, there was an outbreak among the Chinese on the Coptic, arising out of a little difficulty among themselves. They were, as usual, playing dominoes, 
when accusations of foul play were made. Three retired, and coming back, each armed with a chopper, went for any one who chanced to be near. The baker was one, and him they sliced with the choppers, till the watch rushing up they were disarmed, put in irons, and were on arrival handed to the police authorities at Yokohama. Meanwhile we were deprived of the services of our baker, who made excellent bread. There is a small cabin aft, set apart for opium smokers. It is always crowded, but the space is wholly inadequate to the demand. Those who cannot get in appropriate a covered passage near the wheel, where in double line, feet to feet, they lie and smoke like gods together, careless of mankind. To them, hateful is the dark blue sky vaulted o'er the dark blue sea. Death is the end of life, ah, why should life all labour be? Let them alone. They have toiled much and long in an alien land, bearing the insults and often the cuffs of a race they despise. Now they have made their little heap of money, and are going back to spend it with their families, and with the sweet certainty that their bones shall rest in their own land. There will be labour again when the voyage is over and they land in Hong Kong. In the meanwhile, let them muse and brood and live again in memory with those old faces of their infancy heaped over with a mound of grass two handfuls of white dust shut in an urn of brass End of chapter twelve